0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Protagonist Overabundance Syndrome. Science fiction cinema essentials of the late 60s and early 70s. Playing My Lackeys. And Alexander of Obanotychus. In Sunset City, there's always something fishy going on. And we're not talking tuna. Normally good neighbors
1: are suddenly stealing jewels, kidnapping kitties, and blackmailing the mayor.
0: The magical kitties of Sunset City have their paws full. That's why they've formed the Cat Eyes Detective Agency. Because even though human detectives are pretty good at their jobs, sometimes it takes magic to uncover what's really going on in this town.
1: Magical kitties save the day, is the family favorite role-playing game for all ages. I am so excited about this, I have to break character. (laughs) You know I love cats and noir. Atlas Games adds mystery and intrigue to your
0: game with the kitty noir hometown. Are there scritches? Do the cats get scritches? Kitty Noir has players explore a whole new detective series or throw in a mystery that any visiting kitty can uncover. Okay, but is it really noir? Kitty Noir takes its inspiration from classic film noir and crime movies from the 1930s to the 1950s and from golden age science fiction stories of time travel. Someone has frozen the city in time inside a magical bubble and they don't want anyone to know about it. And it's now on Kickstarter, you say? You said that, but you are correct. Hmm... Are there any other new magical kitty treats I can add to my collection? Well, there's the new Game Master kit, too. Yeah, It's got a sturdy GM screen, plus a handy poster of kitty breeds to help you pick your perfect kitty character. Don't you mean my perfect kitty character? Uh, if you keep that up, I won't mention the full-size poster map of Sunset City. Find Magical Kitties
1: Noir on Kickstarter from
0: March 28th to April 27th 2023. Learn more at atlas games.com or follow the link in the show notes.
1: The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. And today, in the gaming hut, those miniatures are thumping because we've got a bunch of miniatures out there. We've got, everyone's got their own mini, and it looks like the GM has brought out f- half a dozen minis, maybe, maybe a whole dozen, in response to a question from beloved Patreon backer Ludovic Chabant, who says, "...many of our TV and cinema inspirations feature only one or two protagonists. This means that whenever they talk to the big bad crime boss with his bodyguards, go to a shady biker bar, or run into assassins at a witness apartment, there's real danger." But an RPG party is often made up of four or five protagonists, and that can reverse this power balance. The crime boss's two bodyguards, or the one or two assassins at the witness apartment, are vastly outnumbered. So many tropes, from thrillers, dramas, and horror movies featuring a protagonist getting pushed back, getting their nose broken, or having to flee, are now somewhat harder to implement because the PCs have a bigger presence. Well, mathematically grounding that question... Ludovic continues, is this a problem? Should the crime boss get five bodyguards instead of two? Are there better ways to handle it? I love the, is this a problem? And then you and I say, nope, not a problem. Well, that was the gaming.
0: (laughs) It is a problem. It is
1: a problem. Ludovic has correctly identified a problem.
0: Yes. And to some extent, it is a limitation of the form because- A role-playing session plays best with, like, three to six people. And as Ludovic says, typically uh, a lot of adventure genre stuff, there may be a team of people, but the team typically goes in, like, in in ones or twos. And this brings us to the, I guess, the first solution to this. But I guess I would be uh, remiss if I didn't start with, like, the third or fourth or fifth solution to it, which is, there is a game that I designed that fixes this problem, and what it is is Gumshoe One-to-One, mm-hmm. where if you want to play a single protagonist thing and have it feel like that, or just see the difference if you run with a single protagonist, check out Gumshoe One-to-One. For example, Cthulhu Confidential, where the scenario that I wrote in that one with Hardboiled Detective Dex Raymond has a scene at the end that unfolds brilliantly nearly every time anytime anybody runs it, and is all the more shocking and brilliant for the fact that it's just the kind of thing that would normally happen at the end of a single protagonist story of that type. But because it's happening in role-playing, it's wildly different. Mm -hmm. So even as an exercise to see how true Ludovic's observation is, play a scenario two of Gumshoe one-to-one, because it changes everything. The idea that you are alone in the world and you don't have backup, that ain't a thing in a regular multiplayer tabletop game. So the the solution one, as I was alluding to earlier, Ken, is have people split up and go in in ones and twos, right? Yeah. I mean, channelize
1: the story such that there's a lot of things to investigate and some people have to go to the crime boss headquarters. Some people have to go to the witness's apartment and ask them. Some people have to go to the biker bar. And so you're back to a group of one or two protagonists entering a den of danger. Uh, the other way to do it is to vastly increase the potential threat of even a single foe. I guess that is, if we're plugging games we designed, that is sort of the goal of Knight's Black Agents in that, you know, an individual super soldier fights Jason Bourne, but is probably going to get taken down by four or five Jason Bourne's pretty easily, but a vampire should be able to take on four or five characters. And if they go blundering in, then they are made mincemeat of, and they learn an important lesson about vampires. So that was sort of the, well, five guys don't fit in this apartment, but what if the one or two that did were really scary? And, to an extent, you can see a little of that with D&D, where, you know, the number appearing gets smaller as the monsters get more hit dice. But I feel like, you know, in terms of just the sort of the visual cues and the remembered story beats, Night's Black Agents solves it by making the individual bad guys actually hard for even one or two characters to take on at all.
0: Right. And even if you look at ensemble shows where there's a, a cast of problem solvers that is greater than two, mm-hmm. they split them up there too, right? Right. And yeah. so, Veronica
1: Mars goes one place and Matt goes another place. And it's just a, a bunch
0: of different uh, storylines. Right. Or the backup people will be waiting outside, right? they will mm-hmm. be the, you know, the proverbial people in the van listening in. And so you can construct these situations so that there's, even if you don't literally cut away between different groups of people doing things at different times, even yeah. when you can't do that, You can find other reasons for not everybody to be in the scene at the same time. So, you know, there's a person running surveillance in the van outside. There's the sniper on the other side of the uh, roof on the other side of the street. Or there's, you know, the people who are, you know, staking out the cars in case the uh, bad guys want to get away. There's also just the fact that if you want to, you know, interrogate somebody or meet with them, they say, well, I'm only meeting with two of you. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Because of course, you know, if six people show up to the mob boss's apartment, that's not a, a knock on the door. Hey, let's talk kind of interview. That's, that's a menace in and of itself. And you as seasoned people who know mob bosses, seasoned people with street wise or cops or whatever, you know, that that would be seen as an aggressive move. And in fact, most players will already in a lot of situations go, well, it doesn't make any sense for all of us to go in. Mm -hmm. And so, Yes, there might be a big final shootout with everybody involved, as there would be in the genre source, but that'll be different than the scene where they just go in and talk, right? That'll be some form of ambush or fight, and often one initiated by the bad guys.
1: Yeah, and the tactical questions, you just have to assume that the bad guys are as at least as smart at that as the good guys are, and if they notice that the uh, party is always going around in a clump of four or five people, they'll begin to take measures to peel them apart, so... There will be, you know, oh, your aunt had just reported there was some weird guys looking around outside her house. Someone needs to go check that out, and we can't all go because we have to investigate this mysterious biker mobster assassin guy, and uh, that's not how it works. So the, you know, even if the player characters are resisting genre trope, the opposition is not going to let a, uh, you know, basically a small fire team of opponents wander around their turf without doing something about it, and that something might be, turtle up and say, yeah, great, uh, you don't get an interview, you're going to have to come in hard and turn it into the raid instead of Chinatown.
0: Right, because biker bars are usually well fortified. Yeah,
1: and often full of more than four to five bikers, frankly.
0: Right, there's there's that as well. Yeah. So that, that, that actually example offers a situation where you can occasionally have a whole, you know, the whole party go in. But even then... Mm -hmm. You're basically saying, how long until the bar fight? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Now, there are places, though, where I will play with reality and allow sort of a conceit of who's actually there and who isn't to sort of get fuzzy in order to make things more fun. So in an interrogation scene or a questioning scene where only, you know, one or two people go in, I will let the other players lob questions and without squinting too hard at it, it's either, yes, this, this is a list of questions that you all talked about beforehand, which in the actual scene, as it plays out, are being delivered out of character by other players. And then you're going ahead and asking them. And that allows players to feel that they are participating in a scene that their characters literally aren't in. Mm-hmm. The advantage of doing that is, as with anything in role-playing, people like to tackle a problem with a whole bunch of people going at it. It's easier for the players to come up with all the questions they need rather than to make one player do it. And it's less fun to have everybody else have to shut up. Mm -hmm. And it would be more boring to do the fully realistic thing of, okay, here's the 20 minutes where you all sit down and write all your questions up. And then the player goes in and asks the questions that that would be deadly dull. And so there's certain times when I will allow the uh, fictional wall to sort of not break, but get get a little wobbly, and but all for maximum engagement and fun.
1: Yeah, I I feel like that's that's a pretty common response. That sort of you know nonviolent kibitzing is I think fairly standard. You know, even in less uh, genre dependent play, it's just sort of you know oh pull that wall sconce type stuff when the thief is searching for secret doors, that kind of stuff. That if they're you know off of the other room, even then you still have people saying that, and it's all fine. The sort of cloud nature of play, I think really only needs to get focused down when you're either playing something where you're really trying for some sort of emotional validity. She wouldn't break down and say this to a bunch of weirdos. She'd only say it to the caring, nurturing druid or you're breaking down for tactical reasons and that you are going into a biker bar. And the question is how many of you are going to the biker bar and how many of you are staying outside to guard your car. And you know, That actually is not a terrible question, is if they've got a resource that they can't bring into the mob headquarters, the thing is, really, the five of you are all going into the the witness's apartment, and one of you is carrying the holy grail that you just found? Oh, well, maybe not. And so, giving the players reasons to split up for, you know, protection for defensive reasons for their own tactical good sense is another way to handle it, as opposed to you know tempting them with a lot of different trails
0: right and again the thing about ensemble adventure shows is just look at them and see how they how they do that and how they divide spotlight time between the various characters and there are different ways of doing that so a movie where one of the characters is Tom Cruise mm-hmm. and he has a team yep. of people it will still be all about Tom Cruise and the other characters are sort of his reservoirs of additional abilities that uh, whereas you know a TV procedural You will see how they, you know, if there's no interrogating for this character to do this week, they get a dramatic subplot or they Mm -hmm. get some other thing to do. And so part of this is, I guess, thinking about a scenario as, you know, still having a single protagonist, but there's just a bunch of single protagonists who are doing uh, things uh, in parallel. So also you know look at the way that criminal minds does something for example
1: or the original mission impossible speaking of missions impossible right
0: so i think can you and i a mere two protagonists have uh, fully dispatched this problem and can head off to see what other problem awaits us on the other side of this exciting commercial message The skies above New Olympus are patrolled by caped crusaders, but these superior beings are far from heroes. They wield their powers with
1: reckless disregard, serving the interests of corporate overseers and silencing
0: those who oppose their will. You are Clara Keenig, investigative journalist for the pedestrian newspaper. You intend to prove that the privileged superhuman elite do not yet hold a monopoly on justice.
1: Welcome to Alter Ego Mania. The newest setting for the Gumshoe 1-to-1 system.
0: Featuring a quick start rules guide, printable problem and edge cards, and a starter adventure. Alter Ego Mania contains everything you need
1: to run a one-player, one-GM game set in a universe of corrupt superheroes. Exclusively available in PDF. The exciting format unaffected by global paper shortages. That can't get stuck in customs. That's waiting for you right now. At the Pelgrane Press Web Store. Or drive-thru RPG. The whir of the projector, the smell of the popcorn, the feel of whatever that is under our feet as we make our way to the center aisle, center seats of the cinema hut, welcome us to, once more, our film festival of science fiction cinema essentials. And Robin, uh last time I guess we teased this, but this time we are getting ready to name, I believe, and I think film in general, believes the science fiction cinema essential. If we were just going to do not just one one list, but
0: one movie, it would be this film. Right. And of course you're talking about, since we uh, ended in the late 60s, you're talking about Stanley Kubrick's 2001 from 1968. It was a surprise to me compiling the research to this, that this was in 68. I thought it was 69, mm-hmm. which means that When my dad took me to see this in its original run, I was four years old. Ah. So this is a film that I think is literally permeates my being. That would make it one of my earliest memories Mm -hmm. going to see this film, and I do have vivid memories of that. That's a way to
1: marinate someone at four years old, I'll tell you that. Mm
0: -hmm. And uh, I think I would dream about it later afterwards, in fact, so... This one is, you know, not literally in my DNA, but I guess probably literally in my neurons. Mm -hmm. And for those who haven't seen it, scrub forward and go see it and come back. Uh And essentially, this is, in many ways, we once again see the pattern set by a woman in the moon. Because it is about a space voyage. Uh, There's a lot of time spent on the Technical aspects of uh, space technology, and then the trip itself, and sort of the daily life in space stuff. Daily life in space, and there's treachery on board. The distinguishing factor is that the treachery comes from the ship's onboard computer, of course, and, and one of the many incredibly famous scenes. And of course, this is based on a Arthur C. Clarke short story. The monolith first shows up in that, and it is an example of how literary science fiction, even hard science fiction, uh, as put forward by uh, Clark, plus cinema equals mysticism. Right. Because there's this whole other aspect to it which dovetails with Kubrick's dim view of humanity. Uh, of course, the, the other famous you know, bit where the, the hominids are getting along peacefully till the monolith shows up violence is introduced. The most famous match cut in all of cinema occurs. Mm -hmm.
1: You know, you just know that David lean, when he watched that went,
0: damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And six years or eight years, I held the record. Yeah, I thought I would have that crown for longer Uh so that you have this mystical question mark at the beginning. And then the film sort of dissolves into itself, into a hallucinatory mysticism at the end. So what more could you ask for? I say
1: again, an attempt to film something that is fundamentally unintellectual and while that's a wild thing to do in science fiction it is the question of once we transcend our own ability to think about ourselves once we evolve or are carried or travel past that point where our frame of reference makes sense what is the response and that's the you know, science fictional question that unifies everyone from, you know, Wells to o- Olaf Stapleton to H.P. Lovecraft to Arthur C. Clarke. And it is answered the only way it can be answered, which is in a nonverbal hallucination storm. And the quality of the filmmaking throughout is to tell this story in these entirely mystical, impressionistic, nonverbal ways and cues while still having a, you know, powerfully intellectual through line with the dialogue and the, and the computer and the spaceships and all the rest of that. And that ability to work on both those tracks and work perfectly is part, I think, of what makes 2001 so amazingly successful, where even a, you know, a movie that tries basically the same thing, Icarie XB1, you know, just it, you know, r- runs into technical problems and it runs into, You know, it it wasn't Kubrick, it was a perfectly nice Czech-Slovakian guy, and that's what the difference is. It's asking the same questions as we talked about as Woman on the Moon and a lot of these other movies. It's even coming up with a lot of the same answers, but it's doing it in a way and at a scale that no movie before and no movie since has, you know, they've barely attempted it, and they certainly haven't succeeded. It's a real experience. Absolutely watch it however you can. Do try to watch it, I would say, In the 70 millimeter on the big screen, if you have that shot, because the immersion of the tiny viewer into the enormous spectacle is absolutely something I I think inarguably that Kubrick intends, right? That he's not, you're not meant to be an equal of this movie. You're meant to be a blown away supplicant of this movie the movie is the monolith you're the monkey and you react with mute terror and kubrick says good mute terror is where you belong
0: right and if you can't have your dad take you to it when you're four yeah <laughs> seeing it now and 70 Mel is, mm-hmm. is a substitute for that uh, next i want to quickly mention something that is not a cinema essential but is perhaps a pop kitsch essential and that is Roger Vadim's uh, Barbarella from 1968, which is an adaptation of the Jean-Claude Forrest comic, has uh, his uh, then-wife Jane Fonda, has John Philip Law, David Hemmings, Milo O'Shea, and it's sort of trippy mild sexploitation. Mild
1: for now. I think in 1968 it was less mild.
0: But Yeah, anyway, <laughs> it's it's if you are a student of late 60s kitsch and comic books, that's a, a thing that we want to acknowledge, even if I, yeah. I can't recommend it. And especially to the legion of younger kids who were wildly disappointed when it was re-released uh, <laughs> after Star Wars as yep. a, something else that was like Star Wars. There may be a, a younger generation than I who are embittered by it.
1: Yeah, I, I think Barbarella really, to the extent it's science fiction at all, I as opposed to the ridiculous, you know, trappings and whatnot, it's sort of social science fiction. It's grappling with, you know, feminism and, and the role of women in a, in a way that is also, as you say, basically a sexploitation film because French, but, you know, I think the visual qualities of it, Carrie Jane Fonda does a terrific job as that character. I think that there's a lot of things to sort of borrow from it and take from it as a student, as you say, of sexploitation or late sixties film or whatever, it's not a masterpiece by any stretch of the imagination. And while it's an essential on some other list, probably not the science fiction cinema essential list.
0: Yeah, maybe the, the cult cinema mm. essentials. Now, a
1: movie that I think on the sort of face of it is no better than Barbarella as a film is actually more essential as a film, and that is Franklin J. Schaffner's Planet of the Apes, from the same year as 2001 and Barbarella. So, that's your triple feature, kids of 1968, I guess. This is based very loosely on the Pierre Boulle novel, which makes less sense than the movie does. Rod Serling adds his characteristic Hectoring to it, which is always good. And of course, the bit has been spoiled, I think, eternally, so it must have been more surprising in nineteen sixty eight when it happened, but everyone who knows anything about the movie knows the surprise ending. But Charlton Heston is an astronaut. He and his fellow astronauts crash on a on a mysterious planet where apes are the dominant species there's a great deal of racing around and hugger-mugger. And surprise, Robin, the planet was Earth all along. They've only traveled into the future, and they've discovered, I guess, the promise of what Kubrick sets up at the beginning of 2001 is that apes and spaceships, they mix nice.
0: I would actually, I think, probably at a technical filmmaking level, rank it a bit above you. I would say it's a much better constructed film than Barbarella, in part because it's it's a banger of momentum, right? Yeah. It just never, never stops going. It's uh, compact. There's always something interesting going on on screen. So I think Schaffner is a kind of underrated director. He had a relatively short career, but it is actually uh, quite well made and I think does hold up. It is influential stylistically for a couple of things. First of all, this was really the full advent of contemporary prosthetic makeup. Mm-hmm. This was a big advance, and there's a whole documentary that you can check out that's just about the process of putting the makeup together, and there's enough of that story to actually warrant a a full-size documentary. And that feels a little bit like a a special feature, but it's still worth uh, tracking down. And also, the Jerry Goldsmith score, and he is responsible for a lot of classic scores of this period, but this one takes the experimental classical music of its era and turns it into Film music in a way that is still incredibly listenable as a score by itself and changed how other people wrote scores. So it's a modernist classic in and of itself. Now, next we've come to one that it's like, uh, this is why there's two people doing this, because Mm -hmm. occasionally one of us will uh, see something that the other hasn't yet, rate it as an essential. So tell us, Ken, about Colossus the Forbin Project. Directed by Joseph Sargent.
1: Yeah, Colossus the Forbidden Project is sort of the uh, flip side of 2001. If 2001 is the computer as the ghost in the haunted house, the computer Colossus is the demon that you summon up but can't control. Forbin is played by German actor Eric Braden. Uh, Eric Braden, not his real name. He changed it for the part and for the rest of his Hollywood career. So, Uh,
0: and then became famous as a, as a soap actor.
1: Right. And sort of headcanon, I assumed that Charles Forbin was actually, you know, one of those paperclip guys that we brought over. But anyway, he builds a supercomputer called Colossus that will uh, run America's nuclear defense systems to prevent there ever being an accidental launch. And we open up with something straight out of Forbidden Planet, the the great scope of the immense alien construction, which turns out to be this Missile Command computer. And sure enough, literally the day they turn it on, first of all, it notices the Soviet secret version of itself, Guardian, and then it demands to talk to Guardian. And from then on, you are always wrong-footed, off-balance, as Colossus just Continues to accrete power to fulfill its, you know, prime directive, I guess, of preventing war. And Colossus thinks, well, the way to prevent war is to take over. And that's what it does. It is a it's a Frankenstein story in a lot of ways. It's also a Faust story. It's remarkably fast paced, remarkably riveting, especially for a 1970 movie that made no money at the box office and sort of sank without uh, much of a trace. But it is the other half of that HAL story Colossus uh, and uh, in in these sort of eras of AI paranoia and uh you know global superpower confrontation Colossus actually hits a little harder now I think than it would have if I'd seen it in the 90s when I could have just spent a little more fun saying you have video phones to talk to the president but the computers are still these big room-sized devices. There's a lot of, you know, sort of letting the technology go a bit because it's 1970, but it still really works. It really sells the concept and it really asks, you know, the important sort of neo-dystopian science fiction questions of what have we built? Again, sort of metropolis in a way in its DNA. It's surprisingly good. And again, you know, you talk about a movie that has got forward momentum. There is... Very little slack in, in the in the Foreman project. It sort of surprised me when I watched it for this segment that, you know, it was as good as it was. I knew it was important. I knew we needed to mention it. And then when I saw it, it was like, this is essential.
0: And now we, we started with Kubrick. We're going to end with Kubrick in this segment. And often you will hear people say about films from this period, well, they couldn't make that now. And they couldn't really make that then because it wound up banned in, in England uh, for many years. It was mm-hmm. drawn from distribution. And, of course, I'm talking about A Clockwork Orange based on the Anthony Burgess novel, uh, starring Malcolm McDowell as a near-future dystopian delinquent who then is subjected to a a test of the uh, values of uh, free will versus the needs of society. Uh, It is still incredibly disturbing, always was, if you're someone who needs to screen the content of uh, films uh, in order to not see particular things. Undoubtedly, one of the things you don't want to see is in Clockwork Orange, so proceed with caution, but a nihilistic, horrible, awful, true, unforgettable film full of Kubrick's bravura touches and, again, full of images and moments that have resonated down into the culture and are continually referenced all the way down to uh, Bart showing up dressed as a droog in the Simpsons, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, I mean you talked about two thousand and one being just a sea of of incidents and elements that sank into the culture and have informed in our in our endless and timeless clockwork orange, same thing with a movie that as I think you argue correctly, you probably couldn't make today, you probably couldn't show it today in many student art film groups, because there would be lines around the block protesting something in it. I'm not saying they would necessarily be off the beam on this one, because it is... There would certainly be
0: people who would opt out of any screening now.
1: Yeah, it is is very, very hard. I think it goes harder than any Kubrick film in really bringing to bear his pitiless view of humanity, and then asking, you know, Here are two obvious values. They are both terrible. Now what citizen? And the power of that, of that theme really carries the movie through uh, some frankly, even to my relatively uh, laid back sensibilities, frankly disturbing and borderline unwatchable stuff. It's, it's a moment. It's a, it's a, it's a ringer. And so don't go into it cash, but it is uh, a masterpiece and absolutely essential, not just. You know, to science fiction, but to something that, as you say, Bart Simpson and everyone else has carried stuff away from it in pop culture.
0: Right, because many post-apocalyptic, or well, not post-apocalyptic, but uh, n- near-future dystopian films, the dystopia is external, mm-hmm. uh, and the dystopia in Clockwork Orange is the dystopia of who people really are and what they what they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, Burgess's novel is about Christian redemption. Like Kubrick's <laughs> movie is not. not. And on that note, we will return to the science fiction cinema of the early 70s next week. But uh, this time around, I believe we have a question waiting for us on the other side of this exciting commercial message. The Best of Askfageln is now available
1: at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled...
0: and six guns role playing game western. How do you say "slap leather varmint" in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best
1: of Astvageln on drive through. Keep our determinedly two protagonist podcast running by joining such backers as Steve Sigety, Tristan Knight,
0: Joe Webb, Andrew Dacey, and Andy M. Young. It's time once more to Ask Ken and Robin, and this time around, beloved Patreon backer Peter Atkinson, Ask Ken and Robin. In the Gaming Hut of episode 494, you discuss campaigns where most of the PCs are sidekicks to a superior hero. I'd love to hear your thoughts about an RPG where the PCs are the supporting characters for Ken Height in his Travels for Time Incorporated. Surely Ken has lackeys who take care of all of the all-important details that Ken shouldn't be bothered with. So this actually calls back to our previous question of the, whenever we discuss your adventures in time, it has a clear single narrative. And so how would we turn Ken's Time Machine from a beloved and popular segment into a game? There's a couple of ways to do sidekick games, as we've talked about earlier. One of them is sort of the thing that they did in the now canceled CW show Batwoman, where Mm. Batman is missing. And all of the main characters get to be Batman adjacent without Batman coming in and Batmaning things up. So in that version, Ken, you would be the, you know, the the main GM character. And uh, perhaps there would be a lot of Ken wrangling that would have to go on about all of the other lowly time incorporated characters who show up actually run your missions for you and then you get to write it up and come in the podcast and pretend they're not there.
1: Right. I can see, I can see a lot of fun possibilities with it. You can either do the sort of, like you were saying, the sort of Remington steel model where the boss is either fictional or is a figurehead. Uh, And there's uh, people of detour and Sherlock Holmes and all kinds of other characters in that same sort of way, or they've simply removed him a la Batman. And I feel like there's a lot of good fun in that. Obviously, you know, on a macro level, the question is who would play this game, I think is a pretty big <laughs> one, but you can assume this game
0: will exist for the remaining 12 minutes of this segment. You, sure. you, can,
1: you can assume a, um, a game in which Doctor Who is just a, a false front put up by the Gallifreyans and it's all the companions that have to do the work. And that would actually be kind of a funny concept by itself. The big question is, are you accomplishing the mission or is there something else going on? Is it an internal story, basically, about what is the psychic cost of being around this guy like? Is it sort of like... You know, instead of my life with Master, it's my time with Ken, and you're sort of being ground down by the nonsense of, you know, history changing and, and, and the you know, having to keep the vodka cabinet stocked, that kind of stuff. Or is it a game where you're actually doing Ken's Time Machine missions, and one of you is the scout, and one of you does the, you know, the face man stuff where you interact with Genghis Khan and find out what he likes to drink, and then, you know, one of you is, is, is there to punch, you know, angry Mongols who don't want you talking to Genghis Khan, and so so you're basically sort of setting it up so that at the end you've had some number of successes measured in dice or in, you know, uh, narrative check marks where. Ken Haidt can, in fact, swan in, walk up to Genghis Khan, say, hey, Kumis is great, but have you heard of Brandy Alexander's? And then Genghis Khan is uh, telling me more. And suddenly he's going south instead of west. And uh, we fixed Russia or whatever my situation was. Right. Kind of rough on India, though. I don't feel like I want to do that to India. I'm going to push back against that mission, Robin.
0: So the core activity of the segment in real life <laughs> is that I or one of our beloved backers gives you a poser mm-hmm. and then you have to go off and do a bunch of research and come up with a, a, a fun answer. Mm-hmm. And I think that probably if, we, if we're actually going to move beyond the amusing drollery of imagining anyone playing this <laughs> is what the game design would be, is that it would be a play by slack game where the players are given their assignment by the GM And then their job is to go off and research it and find all the information on the story and put it together and then assemble their plan, not sitting around the gaming table, but talking to each other in their Slack or Discord channel. And then when they finally come together, then you have the moment of play, which then features them trying to bring off the mission. And so you would have to have a group of people who enjoy doing homework together mm. and probably you know relatively truncated game sessions. So this would be great if you and a group of people who could be distributed all across the world want to play something, but you only have like a two-hour window where you can all actually get together and, and see each other face-to-face on, on the Zoom or Google Chat or whatever. But you have all sorts of other time to interact at times convenient to everybody. So it's like, well, we're going to go and you know, interfere with this thing or that thing. And so let's, let's all research Genghis Khan. Let's come up with a cool thing. Let's find, uh, and then the GM can escalate the stumpiness of the questions. And sometimes they would have to resort to, well, in order to make this torpedo factory being hit by a meteor thing interesting, let's bring in John Wilkes Booth, right? <laughs> and so essentially the, the play aspect of this would be largely people replicating your creative process and of course we require a team of people to, to replicate your process all together sort
1: what of it, a collaborative history mashing yeah i think that, the, that we we maybe should put a, a bookmark in this question because the question of game design where the much of the gameplay is blue booking or is the research part the outside assembling you know, all the necessaries to know enough to play the game. That's something that happens in a lot of more games than just beloved Ken's Time Machine the RPG. So, that itself, I think, is a pregnant space to talk about in the gaming hut at some point. But I do feel like part of the fun of doing the Ken's Time Machine stuff is the chance to, you know, run around and encounter things that you hadn't previously. I'm sort of presenting the The fun of mostly of people outside, but also my fun if you've hit me with some nonsensical meteorite strike in West Virginia that I have to make sense of so the, the 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 fun is the actual research that that is sort of the the core activity for me and the showing off on the podcast is you know really uh almost the you know the the capper it's not even the 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 final combat in d and d it's the counting up all the gold pieces part at that level
0: so I mean, well, I think to make the actual Play part where actually playing out what happens and things going wrong and stuff. The extra level of challenge there, I guess, would be you know use real vodka, mm-hmm. which of course yeah. would, you know limit it to a subset of players, obviously,
1: <laughs> and to a and to that two hour window that you talked about. Yeah, that could be another whole element of of either you know my time with Ken or with this sort of gameplay. I think actually you know drinking should be a a, a recommended add on for any version of Ken's Time Machine the RPG the Other sort of way that you could build it is from the institutional building side of things where you're not even the guys who help me necessarily. You're the people who are, who have got some vision of time and you're trying to. Make, you know, maybe it's, it's a deal where you're not the guys who go out and help me on my missions or, or, or prep the, the time machine or whatever. You're the guys back at time incorporated. It's the time incorporated RPG and you're engaged in bureaucratic struggle with each other because some of you want Genghis Khan to go south and some of you want Genghis Khan to go west and some of you say, why don't we just strangle Genghis Khan and see what happens? And that becomes the goal. And then the Ken's time machine part that you can play out either as sort of a, a quick roll of the dice, what it can do, or you can break down and then you go from the bureaucrats at Time Incorporated down to the local team that, that does it in, like you say, in two hours. So the research can be played out in some ways as you're assembling your time brief. You're, you know, you're Part of the bureaucracy at Time Incorporated and you have a goal and you're trying to edge out the other guys so that when you go down to the the player group, some group of the players will be surly and reluctant, which again, I think will really help the Ken's Time Machine verisimilitude.
0: <laughs> be realistic about having to carry your bags for you. Exactly. So this would be basically just like Shin Godzilla is all about the bureaucracy of fighting Godzilla. This exactly. Yeah. Shin Ken's Time Machine. Shin Ken's Time Machine. Well, I think we've got a, a number of uh, directions that uh, budding designers could... Uh, could go in. So I guess people can start bidding Ken for the Ken's time machine property and flesh that idea out or a sweet license, or perhaps we've squeezed all the juice out of that idea. <laughs> yes, that it, has. Yes, it,
1: it may actually have only been a 12 minute idea, but there we are.
0: Well, it was a brilliant 12 to 15 minute idea, Peter. So thanks for that. Well,
1: if you can accomplish a brilliant 12 to 15 minutes, you're doing better than most people, Robin. Right. And I say, this as a guy with a time machine. <laughs> In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy.
0: The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They
1: misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep
0: hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation... <laughs> In Delta Green, The
1: Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic
0: design. Featuring top-secret eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a foreword by Ray, plausibly deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the nirvana of Nyarlath tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell
1: your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from.
0: That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. It's time once more to wend our way up the crickety cobweb stairs and we're going to pause on the landing. We're going to wave at the Portrait of the uh, Mystical Fire Salamander. This time he's uh, particularly interested in this because he's an amphibian, but he's interested in in, uh, divine reptiles too because we're going to head on in to the Edwardian parlor of the Consulting Occultist where he is waiting to tell us about Alexander of Obanotychus or sometimes Alexander the Paphlagonian which sounds great and I have no idea what it means. But this turns out to be a full version of a story that we've we've touched on in the past in regard to our discussion of a well-known comics writer, Ken. Mm -hmm. But this story begins way before comic books it starts in uh, 105 AD when Alexander is born in Abonotikus, which can is in in the Black Sea.
1: Right, it's on the Black Sea and the mystery Robin is that it it is in Paphlagonia. Paphlagonia is the little tippy-top part of Anatolia between Pontus and Bithynia. So Pontus is to the east, Bithynia is to the west. So he's sometimes
0: named after his town and sometimes after his region.
1: Right. And he was a beautiful baby. We know this because he grew up to be a beautiful boy and then a beautiful man. And being handsome and plausible and from a backwater on the Black Sea, he got into being a traveling magician slash itinerant oracle slash guy who would run the mysteries for you slash quack doctor Basically, he was a scam artist.
0: It is surprising how, uh, how modern his story is. Yes. He's, uh, handsome and plausible. He's a,
1: a, a lovely rogue. And I should say, I guess at this point, that the sole source we have for Alexander is the writings of Lucian of Samosata, who hates him more than anyone has hated anyone. Right.
0: And he's a prolific and celebrated hater. He's a yeah. satirist who verbally burns down all sorts of authority figures and is, opposed to religion in general. So think basically 1st century Christopher Hitchens meets PJ O'Rourke.
1: Right. Yeah, he's a he's an epicurean by by belief system to the extent he believes anything. And he actually um well we'll get to the the fun of evolution of Samosata. But anyway, this is the only place we know about him. So I guess, take it with a grain of salt, but on the other hand, it sounds completely realistic. <laughs> it sounds like he's our kind of guy. Right. So, Alexander, a good-looking young man, as Lucian says, sold his companionship, and eventually sold his way into companionship with the disciple of Apollonius of Tiana, the famous magician and philosopher, and learned all about magic and gulling rubes and oracles, From this guy, then he teams up with a partner named Coconus of Byzantium. Coconus may have been a nickname, meaning nuts, so it then may have been made up by Lucian. But anyway, they were a partnership, they ran their scams, and they made their way, (laughs) while romancing a rich widow, to Macedonia. She was from Macedonia, she took them back to her house in Pella. And in Pella, they had a cult of magic snakes, and the magic snake cult in Pella goes all the way back to the times of Alexander the Great, who uh, Lucian is continuously comparing and contrasting to Alexander of Aminotychus, and the magic snakes of Pella impressed Alexander and Coconus a great deal, so they bought a big, impressive magic snake, and I say bought, they probably got the widow to buy the snake, but they bought a magic snake from Macedonia, and they worked up a snake charming act. And uh so they said, what can we do with a snake charming act? And Alexander says, you're thinking too small. Let's take the entire empire for everything it has.
0: Yes. This is no performing... Snake,
1: this is a god. This is a god. So in Chalcedon, they, they they had an argument as to whether they should headquarter themselves in Chalcedon, which is a a city in Bithynia, or go back to the back end of nowhere to Abinotychus. And Alexander says, let's go back to my hometown. And as Lucian says, because the Paphlagonians are well known to be rich idiots, (laughs) rubes and thumpheads, it just, it just says, so if you 're running a scam, run it in Paphlagonia, they will line up to give you their money because they 're just that stupid, so Paphlagonia, apparently the California of the ancient world, but there we are, so they bury these bronze tablets in Chalcedon that when they would dug up, they would look ancient uh, like a prophecy, and they would say very soon Asclepius, with his father Apollo, would take up his residence at
0: Abenaticus, and everyone right. would be like, and, and Asclepius, of course, is the uh, god of medicine. And healing
1: the, the god of medicine, who is symbolized among other things by the sacred snakes on the Caduceus. So
0: right, because this is not the first snake cult. This is just a really interesting, fun one. And this is the building fun on one an existing
1: that, that goes and it goes farther than many snake cults do. I have to say. Oh yeah, and as many snake cultists do, Coconus dies of snake bite circa one fifty five A.D., which is about the same time that uh, Alexander reveals Glycon. In Abinatycus. So everyone's gathered to find out about this mysterious coming of Asclepius. They've begun dug- digging a temple to Asclepius there in Asclepius, and he goes down into the foundations, and he roots around in the mud, and he pulls up an egg, an egg that he finds in the mud, and it's a goose egg that he's already blown out, and he's hidden a baby snake in, and when he breaks the egg in front of everyone, there's a tiny snake, and it curls itself up in alexander's hand and he says this is the new asclepius this is the new god and everyone is amazed because a snake coming out of a a big egg that's never happened and and they uh they get super excited and then he does the classic snake swap out robin and brings his magic big snake out uh, a week later and says look how he's grown this is glycon son of asclepius the new god and uh, that's the moment that everyone goes bananas. Uh, he works up a deal where Glycon the snake, he holds it so that the snake's head is under his arm and he has a fake snake head that comes out his other arm that is a human face with long blonde hair, just like Alexander of Abenaticus, so that everyone will know who's in charge.
0: Right. Although weirdly, uh, and there's lots of statuary of Glycon, m- many, many different images And in those ones, they're also cool, but the design has shifted, Mm -hmm. and the cool-looking head is sort of cartoony, but also sort of like a lamb, uh, more so than like it is a a person. But this original one looks like him.
1: Right. And again, we don't know what the original basically hand puppet of Lycon looked like. But we have Lucian's description. So that's what we know. So that's big business. He starts doing 70 to 80,000 oracles per year at eight obols per oracle. Now, eight obols is not a lot. It's two days for a working man's wages, but you would pay that for a, for a proper oracle. The cheap oracles are two obols, but you know eight obols is is not terrible. So, so, so this
0: is a, a mid priced prophecy.
1: Yeah, it's a mid priced prophecy, but you pay more if you want to come and talk to Glycon yourself. That makes sense. And those are called. Uh, so normally, what you would do is you would write down your question on a on a piece of papyrus, probably sold to you by Alexander. You'd seal it up. You'd pass it. To Alexander, he'd go into the tent with Glycon, and Lucian goes into some detail about his methods of opening documents without breaking the seal, but he does that, and then he reads the question and writes the answer and reseals it and brings it back out, and everyone is... Uh, dumbfounded that Glycon has written the answer to their question without right. uh, being so, able to. So, read so, it. so
0: the eight obols is just the introductory offer that gets right. you in to yeah. them.
1: Yeah. And then you would uh, pay more if you want what they call the autophone version, which just means the snake is talking. And so this is a ventriloquist and puppet act that Abinotychus works up. Eventually he gets guys who can talk through a tube and make uh, Glycon's mouth move. And uh, sort of, you know, puts money into the special effects, which is important when you're running a theme park. And so the snake will talk to you so that you don't have to write down your embarrassing revelation. Because many rich, famous people began sending their questions into Glycon. And then Alexander would say, man, that was some question you asked Glycon, wasn't it? And they would say, oh, why did I write that down? And so Alexander becomes. That be
0: the even marksman. It's a blackmail round. Exactly.
1: becomes very, very uh, influential. Glycon begins showing up on coins uh, as early as 160 AD. Glycon prophecies are carved into temples as far away as Antioch. Glycon blows up. Glycon is big. He's not just... A local story for rubes. He is now a national, imperial-level phenomenon.
0: Uh, actual emperors are in incorporating him into their, their pantheon of, of patrons.
1: Right. And then, uh, the Antonine Plague hits Rome in 165, with Glycon you know, giving prophecies about how to stay healthy. Uh, Alexander has a bear's grease ointment that he will sell you, uh, blessed by Glycon. And so, that drives even more people into worshipping Glycon, because Glycon is the son of Asclepius and so Glycon knows all about medicine. Right. And And so
0: that medicines show stuff and it's in the first century.
1: Right. And it it really, you know, I think blows up and becomes gigantic during that plague period. He gets to the point where Marcus Aurelius famously smart guy meditations Marcus Aurelius asks Glycon for a prophecy for his war against the Marcomani and Glycon says here's what you do. You take two lions and anoint them with myrrh, and then you drown them in the Danube, and that will give you victory. And the lions get away and swim across the Danube. and well, are l-
0: lions know that when you start putting myrrh on them, it's time to split. It's, it's a bad scene. The lions get away, swim across the Danube, are
1: immediately killed by the Marcomanni, and then 20,000 Romans get slaughtered at the Battle of Carnuntum. Which Lucian, I think, takes a maybe an indecorous glee in reporting. But Marcus Aurelius basically has to rescue the situation. And one assumes that he might have had words with uh, Alexander, but he was too busy getting all head up over there in in, uh, Germany. And uh, Alexander dies around 174. Lucian just says before his 70th birthday of gangrene. Probably some sort of insect infestation led to gangrene, led to him dying. Right.
0: Because, uh, way before antibiotics happened to a lot of yeah, people. Because
1: even if you're the prophet of a god of medicine, it's still 174 AD. So there's just not a lot that you can do. <laughs> it's a situation, but the glycon cult is now sort of going of itself. It's, it's main center has, has died literally, but the cult spreads. For another century it's on uh Emperor Philip II puts Glycon on coins in two hundred forty. Uh,
0: often cults sort of thrive without one person to uh to yeah. be in charge.
1: Yeah, you have a you have a genuine belief in Glycon as this intermediary figure, and obviously Christianity is spreading at the same time. The the religious tenor of the times is looking more for personal figures who will help you uh with all of your problems. And Jesus uh beats Glycon, I think probably for the best, but Glycon makes a good run of it for about 100 years.
0: So, Ken, speaking of apple for teacher, mm-hmm. my question immediately, of course, was, but what's the Romanian connection here? And it turns out that if you want to see Glycon on a banknote that was issued in 1994, he's in the 10,000-lay banknote that Romania issued in that year, and it commemorates a Byzantinologist and also an alternaturalist anti-Semitic politician named Nikolai Iorga. Among his claims to fame, uh, he was a big deal figure there, was uh, that he was assassinated by the Iron Guard. And let's just stop and note that the Iron Guard, you know, people are literally
1: not anti-Semitic enough for the Iron Guard. That's that's a problem group, I would say. Yes, or, it,
0: or rather, he was a separate, ultra-national. Yeah, he was a a,
1: a different locus of right-wing power, and they needed him to go away. But yeah. they picked a lot of fights, the Iron Guard did, amongst them, with the Nazis.
0: <laughs> yes, <laughs> So uh, that's a whole other bucket of uh, semiotics. But it turns out that the image of Glycon on, the, on this note is the fantastic snake, which is a term given to a sculpture that was excavated in Constanta, Romania in 1962. They were digging up a train station and renovating it, and they found uh, 24 amazing pieces of classical sculpture. Among them, this really great, vivid sculpture of uh, Glycon with the the lamb-like face.
1: Right, and this is from that sort of third century expansion of Glycon. Constanta, at the time, was a a sort of a combination resort city and place you exiled people you didn't like to. So
0: so does, does Dracula know any fantastic snakes, Ken? Well, I mean, Dracula,
1: first of all, he knows magic. He knows the history of magic. Glycon is a god of medicine and healing, so he would in theory be against Dracula, but Dracula, I feel like, would know a lot of the, the secrets that Glycon is, is merely the, the surface symbol of. Being a son of a son of Apollo, I just feel like at some level Glycon and Dracula are not going to get along, even though they may That's both... That's
0: probably why he was buried under a train station. Right. They may both
1: be believe in feeding on rubes, but Glycon likes to do it uh, financially only. Just like the Iron Guard doesn't like other uh, rub feeders. Mm-hmm. And we teased it at the beginning. Of course, the most famous and worthy of Glycon cultists is... The magnificent comics writer, Alan Moore, who says that he's had a vision of Glycon, and he says, yes, I was on hallucinogens, but I've been on a lot of hallucinogens, but I've only seen four gods, so I assume it's special (laughs) when you see a god, and one of them was Glycon. And then- The purpose of hallucinogens is
0: to see gods.
1: Then it occurs to him that if you're going to believe in a god, which you kind of have to, it being a necessary state of being. It's ideal to believe in a God who is a sock puppet, who you know is fake. Because if you wind up believing in a real God, you could get yourself into all kinds of trouble with it. So this is his justification for being a a big time Glycon cultist and propounding the message of Glycon, which is it doesn't matter what you're doing if it looks cool and has a snake in it, I guess. But that's Alan Moore's modern day neo-Glyconist philosophy. And I suppose it's as good as many, he and Lucian of Sam Asada, I feel like, would get along if they could be convinced to aim their fire at the same direction. But the, the image of the the greatest exponent of comic art, tipping his cap to this classic, literally classic con artist, is, is something to behold, I think.
0: So I think gaming-wise, or even for a prestige TV drama, a picaresque series of adventures involving... Alexander and Coconus on the road as they're putting their cult together in Byzantium and wider area would be a delight. And uh, I think if you were willing to pastiche Jack Vance hard enough, that could be a fun series of uh, a comic novel or a series of comic novels. And uh, you could answer the question finally of, you know, when Coconus dies of snake bite, it's like, did Alexander have anything to do with it? Was it just an unfortunate accident? So it... uh, I think seems like an entry point into an amusing comical take on the classical world that is infused uh, w- with the uh, spirit of uh, uh, Lucian and uh, possibly Henry Fielding and Jack Vance and Jonathan Swift.
1: Right. I, I think that um, I do want to mention that Alexander also pioneers the Edgar Casey method of giving sleep oracles because he realizes, you know, He's only got so many hours in the day. He can't be getting bastards on all the wealthy women of Abenatykus all day. He, He needs his rest, but that's, you know, money not spent. So he has a special price. If you send Glycon your messages, Glycon will appear to Alexander in sleep and tell you the answer, and then he'll just wake up and write down nonsense. So he doesn't have to come up with the answer; he just writes down gibberish that is his dream revelation, and then you send it back, and you figure it out. So it's he basically invents the Chinese fortune cookie and Edgar Casey all at once, just to you know put more bilking hours into the day. Also, Lucian mentions that he went bald at some point and wore a wig. That was very important to Lucian. So uh, I feel like that could be a fun reveal for our bit where. You know, something tugs his his wig off, and and yeah, because of
0: course he's initially known for his beautiful locks, and and and
1: Glycon has got the long hair, so it's uh, you know, it's a it's it's a branding thing, really.
0: Right. Well, I think that is a a little bit of history that I uh, am happy to know more about. So before any snakes come around here and and uh, give us any prophecies that require the you know putting expensive ointments on lions, it's time for us to get out of here. Uh, But we'll be back next week with more of the similar. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games, Pelgrane Press, Aspagelm, Arc Dream, Dark Tower, and Pro Fantasy Software.
1: Music, as always, is by James simple Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin.
0: Keep this podcast in genuine divine snakeheads alongside such perceptive backers as Benjamin Rawls, Volpine, Derek Yates, Taylor Harless, and Jamie Twine. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our latest design. Bring me the incompetent laggard file. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time and once again uh, we will talk about stuff.